Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. Research into political assassinations and abuses of power in this country. Her program relates the news of the week to emerging evidence about the conspiracy which allegedly maintains by force its control over the legislative and judicial processes in America. And now, here's May. Good afternoon. This is May Bressel in Carmel, California. This is Dialogue Conspiracy number 185, and it's February the 24th, Monday afternoon in Carmel. Uh, from time to time on Dialogue Conspiracy, it's my pleasure to have guests. The only guests I have on my show are fellow researchers because you know this subject is limited to political assassinations and political conspiracies in the United States. And various researchers around the country do come to my home to share research or to give speeches in the area. And this week we have Penn Do Jones, Jr. from Midlothian, Texas, who came to Monterey Peninsula College to speak Saturday night at Monterey Peninsula College. It was really exciting for me to have Penn here. I went to visit him in Texas a few years ago. This was his first visit to Monterey Peninsula and to Carmel, and it's really a pleasure for me to have him on the show with us today. Those of you who have my bibliography of books know that he has written four books. We'll talk about those on the show. Penn and I will talk about those. Uh, he's been a researcher right from the day that John Kennedy was killed. Like myself, he's one of 11 people in the United States of the original buffs. They called us. I believe there were 11 of us. Uh, we can talk together about these matters, right, Penn? Yes. Um, how, how many were there that started, uh, say, November 24, 1963 in the United States? How many people, in addition to yourself and myself, that started researching the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, I think not more than 10 or 12. We've, we've lost, you know, a good many of those. Did you ever meet Shirley Martin? She was one of the early ones. She's it's, the only one I never met. She, of course, has disappeared from the, from the battle. Uh, I haven't heard from her in a number of years. She's the only one I didn't correspond with, and I never met Maggie Fields is living yes. in Paris, and there's Mark Lane. Did Vincent Salandria start right then, too? I suppose so, and I suppose he... I haven't been in touch with Slendry in... Yostin, uh, over in Germany. Um, I love the guy. I've never met him, but I will... Har Harold Weisberg, did he start right from the oh, beginning? Oh, yes, oh, yes, right from right the from beginning. Right from the beginning. Right from the beginning. Uh -huh. He told his wife before uh, Ruby shot Oswald, he told his wife that Oswald would not live to get to the county jail. To get to the county jail. So there were 11 of us spaced... Uh, Maggie Fields was in Los Angeles. I was living in La and she's West Los Angeles. From the scene too, right. And you were in Texas. Weisberg was in Maryland. Yostin was in Germany. Mark Lane in New York. And it's 11 years, and all of us have converged and met. I haven't met Shirley Martin, but all of us have met and become friends and working associates in 11 years. You know, there are probably more than that, too, uh, May, because there are three people besides myself in Texas who work on it, but they prefer not to have their names known. And they started at the same time? Uh, two, uh, one of them started at the same time. The other two are latecomers, but they've been at it now for five, six years. But, I mean, people that have published literature, been on the news media, no. have written letters yeah. to Congress, yeah. the activists, more... Uh, there are a lot of people in the United States that have had a curiosity or saved articles, and those people in Texas, I know who you mean. Uh, 
have done work very quietly, but by and large, uh, their names are not known anywhere right, in the country. Right. One of them sent my books and a copy of the Zapruder film to Dick uh, Cavett. Uh-huh. And uh, after a week, Cavett called him. This fellow lives in Brownwood, Texas, and said, we've all read the books, we've all looked at the film, but it's too hot for us to handle. They wouldn't handle it. No, <laughs> but we met, I met you, and it was in 1966 when Ramparts first published uh, their article with John Kennedy on the cover, The Puzzle. And David Welsh was at my house, and I helped him write a large part of that Ramparts article. I didn't know about you at the time. And then the whole insert, the major part of the article, was your research into the deaths of people that were being killed in relation to the John Kennedy assassination. And you know I have to give credit for those first deaths to newsmen in Dallas who could not get those stories printed in the Dallas and Fort Worth papers, and they simply gave the stories to me. That's how I originally started. Now, one of those men, a very one of the finest newsmen I ever knew, a young fellow, he's drunk tonight, but... Uh, Couldn't he, get the he, stories out. It made him sick. He's, he, 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 he loved journalism. He uh -huh. was one of the best writers I ever knew. But couldn't get the story and told. Finally, no, no, and finally he left journalism and... Uh, his, uh, well, we persevered. Uh, we have a running story uh, going, Penn and myself. Uh, Penn is the eternal pessimist that the truth of the Kennedy assassination will get out, and I'm the eternal optimist. <laughs> and somewhere in between, I, I kid Penn because I feel that the law of compensation, Emerson's law of compensation, is going to work, or the story of David and Goliath, applicable, the Bible story, is there for a purpose that... Uh, the weak and the small can fell the giant, and it's a, the reason it's in the Bible, or that did happen that way, that the poet killed the warrior, or the dreamer, you know, J David the poet, is that uh, you do have the power in you to hit that weak spot if you aim right, and there is a soft spot where the warrior can fall. And while uh, Penn is very pessimistic about the truth ever coming out, he's a warrior 24 hours a day with a couple of hours off for sleep, and if you really believed it would never be told you'd be lying down watching the TV every night or doing something different like all the other people in this country. If you really believed it would never ha be told, you wouldn't be working as hard as you're doing it. Well, I I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. I, I, think, I think we do this work so we can sleep at night. Uh, I do hope that we, are, that we win. But the odds sure do look formidable to me. Well, put it this way, Penn. Uh, you and I are the two researchers that say consistently over and over because of our work, separately we came to this conclusion, that the electoral process and the government were overthrown in 1963, that a dictatorship of yes. the Pentagon took yes. over, right? I, I, think, uh, I think the military took over this country. The Pentagon wrote the Warren Report, Mr. Winokur. Yeah, but I think Division. they took over in the latter days of World War II. Absolutely. And uh, it didn't matter under Truman and Eisenhower. You mean after the World War II? The forming of the National Security Council to take the decisions out of Congress yeah. was the big step. And yeah. now the Domestic Security Council under Rockefeller is the second step to tighten up what Nixon was doing before the Watergate. Yeah, was, well, to make Congress very ineffectual and weak. But the point is this, that... Uh, the military dictatorship in Greece was put in by our military in 1967, and even the day after uh, Greece was overthrown, all the textbooks were collected and new textbooks were issued. But it's only been seven years now, and the military hunt is out of power. And there's no way of saying 
uh, say, for example, we've overthrown 77 countries and we've put in a military dictatorship in the Philippines, in South Korea, in Greece, in Brazil, Chile. in the United States, Chile. But, uh, but this is the way I feel, that the power of people to resist these evil forces is like a body throwing off a disease. And with, you know, surgery, cutting cancer out, uh, with chemotherapy, with new techniques, we have the equivalent of radio cassette, FM stations, alternative press, by word of mouth, uh, messages spread around, and I can't believe that it isn't going to keep spreading until the people someday are in control of the truth. Honey, I can only say I hope you're right. <laughs> well, we work very hard at, at that. Uh, now, you've written... Let's keep fighting. We'll keep fighting. The, you've written four books. Um, the address of those are Midlothian, Texas. If any of you want to order single copies, just Penn Jones, Jr. Box Midlothian, 1140. Box 1140, Midlothian, Texas. What do the volumes cost now, each volume? Uh, the first three volumes are $4 each. Uh, inflation hit us in volume four is six dollars. Six dollars. Those are prepaid to any, anyone anywhere in the world. And uh, well, th here are four books. I brought my copies in tonight to talk about them. Volume one was your published. volume one is so ragged, honey. I'll replace that you, one for you. You should see my warrant report. <laughs> I took it out I'll to give your you school this week. One. You know, and I I almost have to carry it in a. <laughs> cigar box with cotton on the inside my you know in some of my 26 <laughs> volumes you talk about the price going up to worth $2,800 I have cross-filed and underlined and marked those volumes until they're threadbare those are collector's items in themselves with <laughs> right, notations right, but right. Uh, look how I've studied your books but uh, that's the way I do with books but here I have four books forgive my grief which is volume one volume two volume three and volume four the first one came out in 1966. Uh, what are your favorite sections in that book, if you have favorites? What do you think was the most important part of Forgive My Grief in terms of what you like in it the best? I thought we'd take 10 minutes on each book and share them with the listener, what evidence you think is valuable or the well, best. Well, I, I, I think that the fact that we bought one of the Jack Ruby's letters is, is uh, significant. Jack Ruby had several letters smuggled out of the jail uh, he told of a conspiracy. He involved certain people in that conspiracy. These were handwritten letters, and they were sold at auction in uh, New York City. We paid $950 for one of those letters. Now, you see, a handwritten letter by a member of a conspiracy involving other people in that conspiracy, that letter, handwritten, is admissible evidence in court. And that letter was important. That's the reason I paid that kind of money for that's it. That's why it was stolen from you. And that's it? why it was stolen out of my home. By the same person who, who Jim Garrison charged and arrested who for not only Sean Not sabotaging. only charged, he stood up and admitted that he was a spy on Garrison's staff for Tom Bethel. Show. Yeah, Tom was Bethel. the spy who was turning over information. Jim Garrison was a district attorney in New Orleans who arrested Clay Shaw in pertaining to the Kennedy assassination. And... A man came and volunteered to work for Jim Garrison by the name of Tom Bethel, who turned out to be a spy who sabotaged him. You know, when I was in New Orleans... He came earlier to live and work with me. <laughs> and took your letter. <laughs> yeah. When I was in New Orleans in 67 to help Jim Garrison, because I had done work for uh, three and a half years since 63 on the assassination, and I wanted to link the Dallas connections to the New Orleans uh, 
Bethel was in the office, and Jim was getting a lot of letters from all around the country, and some of them had important information or clues, and I saw Bethel roll them up and throw them in the wastebasket. And I said, what are you doing with these? There was money to help Jim with the investigation. There were letters, and he said, we haven't got time to answer all these. We don't have a staff. And he threw it all away and had no record of these people. And when I came home to California, I called him and said, you've got a spy in the crowd, and uh, it took him a while to finger it was Tom Bethel, but he stole your, you think he stole your Ruby letter, huh? Yes, uh, I've certainly accused him of it, and uh, he, he, he didn't, uh, didn't admit it, of course. But, of course, you know, <laughs> after this letter was smuggled out, uh, this uh, letter from Jack Ruby, naming uh, Lyndon Johnson as being part of the conspiracy to kill President Kennedy, it was shortly after that time that Jack Ruby got that three weeks cancer and was dead. You know, the yes, time sequence yes, there, Yes, yes, that's awfully important. I think, uh, and I've said repeatedly that uh, Ruby was fed cancer, fed Injected, cancer. he's... Uh, no, yeah. not injected, fed in his food. Well, you know what? I, I did a radio show on WBI in New York, and a man telephoned who knew the doctors in Texas in the prison and gave me what he said was a formula for causing cancer and that it came up because of the subject that in a few years from now they could see that Nixon was done away with the same cancer, that he had the same syndrome as the phlebitis, the heart thing, and then he said cancer. And what he said, getting back to your ingestion, is that they take urine specimen from Ruby, he said, and they put it back into food, into food that he ingested, and it sets up. He gave me the whole formula for it and told me he'd mail it yeah, to me. Yeah, I thought you were right. saying injected. No, he ingest ingested. Okay. Ruby yeah, had an interview go. in the Long Beach paper, I have a copy of it, where he told his sister they're injecting me with things, you know, when she saw him he was all bloated up and she wanted her own doctors. And he said they were giving him injections, but this man told me that he was ingesting right, urine right, right. that he had given off that they put back in his food and it sets up a certain... Um, I can't repeat the exact formula, but this is what I heard, that yeah. it causes cancer very quickly. Let me tell you this. See, uh, Ruby's body was x-rayed for the first time July 23, 1965. Why July 23, 65? Been in jail for two years. Surely they had some time they could x-ray him. But uh, shortly after that x-ray, the jail doctor left, and they got a new jail doctor, one of the dumbest guys I ever interviewed in my life. And... Uh, uh, he told me, he said, oh, Ruby had been vomiting for a couple of weeks, but I told him he was eating too much candy. He said, I didn't think he was sick. And they would have let Ruby die in that cell, except that the Supreme Court gave him a new trial. And so they decided to have the trial in Wichita Falls, Texas. That brought the sheriff up there into the picture. He came down to Dallas to get a look at his new star border to be and make arrangements for the transfer. He took one look at Ruby at 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon and said, Man, that guy's sick. Y'all better get him in, in the hospital. And he went to the hospital that afternoon with a bad cold. It was pneumonia the next morning, and he was dead of cancer. I remember when days. he went in the hospital, and he had what they said was a cold or pneumonia. And, yeah. and I had some house guests. It was over Christmas, New Year's. Yeah. And uh, there was some remark about Ruby, said there was no conspiracy. And I said, oh, my God, he'll be dead tomorrow morning. This is, you know, and it's sure enough, they had that microphone on him, and the next morning he was yeah, dead. Yeah. And this was all staged, you know, it was a tragic uh, yeah, thing. So yeah. I, I feel that that letter smuggling was, was one of the things that hastened his cancer, was getting that letter out of the jail. Yes, yes, I certainly. Well, they needed to get rid of him. I know. Uh, Ruby would have talked. So this didn't. letter you bought is one of your favorite parts of Forgive My Grief, number one. And the death of Dorothy Kilgallen, too, is important in, in number one. Because uh, she was with Jack Ruby. 
because she's the only one that interviewed Ruby in a room that wasn't bugged after Ruby killed mm -hmm. Oswald. And she was scared to death when she came out of that room, and she died shortly after she said, I'm going to New Orleans and break the Kennedy case wide open. You know, I, I think that's the important... It's important. I think your testimony about Bernard Weissman is important because uh, it was his testimony when he was talking that the members of the Warren Commission left the room and didn't listen to him, and he was among 11 or 12 men brought from military intelligence to the Dallas-Fort Worth area right. to play a part in the assassination, right. and not one of those witnesses was called, and it was terribly important. And you have things of Bernard Weissman's testimony right. in this right. book. How about Forgive My Grief Number 2? We're now in 1967. You came out. Incidentally, uh, Penn has retired. He was a publisher, newspaper writer. For how many years? 24 years in 29, Texas? 29, 28 years and 10 months. I was the owner, editor, and linotype operator of the Midlothian Mirror. And this paper carried more about the John Kennedy assassination than any newspaper in the world. Excluding none. Ex Freedom fighter. Every week, editorials and other researchers could get that paper and read But this we never had more than 1,400 circulation. <laughs> well... Your name will go down in history. You know, even though you come from the small town of Midlothian, Texas, even uh, all that with a small circulation in a little town, your name is legend in this country. You know how you came here, and people say, I heard you on KGO, and another one says, I heard you here, yes. and I heard you there. Yes. You came to town. You see how many people know your name yes. since you've just been in Monterey. Yes. And uh, your name is legend all over the country. I'll get a call from a radio station, and they'll say, we just talked to Penn Jones, and do you want to do something tomorrow? And they pick up my name. and But it's like popcorn popping all over the, these 50 <laughs> states. Your name is known, so that little paper did spread. See, yes, this is the power. Yes. This is what I call power, Penn. When you meet somebody, say, oh, I heard you on KGO. Oh, I heard you on this radio station. We were back at that Boston conference there yes. of conspiracies 11 years later and a 1,000 people there at every uh, meeting. And uh, how can you say that people aren't really getting educated that there's another version of what happened? I, you must feel uh, good about that. I do, I do. It, I feel very, it's, it was so nice to talk to a thousand people up there. You and know, at UCLA I, this week, I, another I, thousand. And if there were more publicity, you'd have two or three or four thousand. If people yeah. had it in, in yes. the straight press, yes. you know, a big article, you'd be drawing two, three, four thousand every time you speak. Certainly. Yeah. So what was the circulation in Texas? Of your paper? Well, the total circulation never was more than 1,400. 1,400. So and here you are, by voice, carrying, say, this <laughs> tape to Boston, Ohio, Sweden, uh, you name it, you know, all around the world, Vermont. Uh, how can you be pessimistic that the truth isn't being told <laughs> to these people? <laughs> all right. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'm still at it. But okay. I'm <laughs> now we're on uh, Forgive My Grief number 2, uh, published in 67. What were your favorite parts of this particular Well, book? of course, we... we started adding up more and more of these deaths. See, now there's more than 100 on my strange deaths list, and there are more of them in Volume 2. I think one of the most important things in Volume 2 is the story of uh, the cleaning and pressing of John Connolly's coat. That is a crime that was committed by the President of the United States in order to help cover this thing up. And it was published for the first time in my in this, volume two. I did a whole chapter, a whole thing on that. I never even submitted it. I wrote a thing, which I should send it as an article, on the chain of command of Connolly's clothing because of the discrepancy of how many bullets 
actually went off with the crossfire, and then the surgeons testified before the Warren Commission, and they got so frustrated because they felt that the bullets in John Connolly's wrist and leg came from different directions, and, and the Warren Commission was steering them to this one bullet there. And finally, yeah. one of the surgeons says, well, for goodness sakes, just get the clothing, because you could tell by an under <laughs> exit bullet. So they traced the clothing, and remember, uh, Mrs. Conley was sitting out in the hall with Mrs. Kennedy and Mr. Cabell's wife, the mayor's wife, and a nurse, surgery nurse took that clothing of his, his shirt and pants and trousers. Instead no, of no, getting, no, wait a minute. She, Mrs. Connolly got the socks and the shoes and the shorts and the pants. But not the but, jacket and the shirt. The, the jacket and the shirt and the undershirt went to Washington. Yeah, but you know how they went. Remember the story, and maybe the people listening don't know. The surgery nurse didn't turn it to the FBI because you could tell enter exit fibers. They didn't turn it over to the Secret Service or the Dallas police. They put it in a paper bag and took it to the room where Lyndon Johnson was sitting and gave it to Clifton Carter, right. who was Lyndon Johnson's right-hand aide, a rich oil man in Texas. Right. And ironically, he gave it to Congressman Gonzalez, right. who took it to Washington, D.C., whose maid found it in the closet and had it dry cleaned. No, no, wait. No, Isn't that, no, didn't she no, send it out? No, let me. I, I see. I hopped Gonzalez about this. Oh. Uh, and... Uh, well, uh, as soon as it came out in Life magazine that Mrs. Connolly inadvertently, inadvertently, I think, said, we finally found John's coat hanging in Henry Gonzalez's closet. So I immediately flew to San Antonio. I said, uh, Congressman, uh, why the hell did you clean and press that coat? And we were having breakfast together, and he, I thought he was going to jump over the breakfast table. And he said, I didn't do it. I said, well, who in the hell did? And he then he told me the story. He said one weekend when he was back in San Antonio, the uh, Cliff Carter called his secretary and told the secretary, said, I'm sending over two Secret Service men to pick up the governor's personal effects. Well, how did he get them, though? How did Gonzalez have them? Carter gave them to Gonzalez and told Gonzalez to take them with him. But didn't Gonzalez, a member of the Congress, know they had the bloody clothing and criminal evidence of a cross fire or the killing of a president? Well, now, here, he, here's what he told me. He said, he gave me the sack and told me to take care of it. And he said, I didn't know what was That's in the like sack. That's like D6-ing. Yeah, uh, John right. Dean's, I mean, he may not know, and it's interesting because he's the only member of Congress now that wants to open up the whole investigation. Right, but right. isn't it interesting, I mean, in a crossfire, either the clothing have no redeeming value at all and should be given back to Mrs. Conley because she he isn't even dead, and he may want to patch up his clothing. You know, the governor may want to put some patches on. Well, now you see, um, uh, most of us believe that that shot that went into John Connolly's back came from the roof of the jail, and the arms came through the front. They came through a different entrance. Right, I right, That's certainly, right. certainly. So, how does it get into a congressman? Bloody clothing is turned into where Lyndon Johnson is. Why was Gonzalez a part of even taking it home yeah, with him well, when the wife is sitting here and the police are there? Of course, here's another question. You should ask the sheriff, what the hell is a man doing on top of your jail shooting at the president? Yeah. Because uh, I went up on top of the jail and it took me two weeks for him, for me to sit out there in his office before he finally decided, well, he ain't going to leave, so we might as well let him go up there. Well, the story of the destruction of the evidence of John Connolly's clothing, it fits in with the destruction of the automobile that was airlifted and the interior was destroyed. Uh, are there other things in this volume, too, that are your favorites of this particular? Uh, I see you have George de Morenshield. We could write a whole book on him. 
and the Miami Tapes. Uh, we could write the several Miami chapters tape. on it. That was uh, published for the first time in, in uh, Some this of these were first too. are important. Maybe you ought to tell them about the Miami Tapes. Uh, well, uh, the Miami police uh, lured a man to a bug department on uh, about uh, November the 12th in which he told in detail how Kennedy was going to be killed. Said, we'll, we'll probably shoot him from the roof of a tall building and we'll, uh, we will arrest someone else shortly afterward just to throw the public off. Said there's no way for him to escape and that he's doomed. Uh, that was November the 12th. Yes, then unfortunately Kennedy... the Miami police turned that over to the Secret Service and when Kennedy came to Miami on November the 18th, he was moved by helicopter from his plane to the speaking site in order to avoid that downtown motorcade. You know, that's interesting. Now we know that there was a plan to kill Kennedy in Miami, then in Chicago, and it finally happened in Dallas. But Frank Sturgis of Watergate fame, alias Frank Fiorino, uh, gave misinformation from Miami about Lee Harvey Oswald being a Castro-Cuban after the assassination. Frank Sturgis had an arsenal of weapons in his home at that time. We now have, the researchers now have, uh, uh, I'm going to have access to it soon, I think you've heard, a picture of Emilio Gonzalez of Watergate fame with Lee Harvey Oswald. Do you know there's a photograph of him with Lee Harvey Oswald, of Gonzalez, with Lee Harvey Oswald and Frank Sturgis. Uh, e. Howard Hunt says he doesn't know Sturgis, but there's an allegations that Sturgis <laughs> was in Dallas at the site of the assassination um, in 1963, and uh, while Hunt is denied that he was there, and I don't believe Hunt was there, Sturgis will not state or answer yes or no whether he's in Dallas. And it yeah. seems to me that if there's a photograph looking like Frank Sturgis with the police, and if he doesn't categorically deny it, and is speaking through his attorney, and if he's photographed with Lee Harvey Oswald, the case from Dallas to Watergate is getting closer. And I think also Frank Sturgis, uh, three days before the Watergate um, arrest in June 72, was given by the Internal Revenue a tax-free church down in Miami. He's, he sells aluminum doors. And in the <laughs> Tippett killing, wasn't a church a place at the corner of the street in Arsenal Weapons yes. and a place for the getaway yes. of where, killing where Officer they, Tippett? Actually, where the killer was, in my opinion, was... Uh, That's right. So you have the uh, pre-situation in Dallas where the church was the Arsenal of Weapons and the hideaway for the people who killed uh, yes. Tippett. You have uh, Fiorini Sturges at the Watergate. You have him photographed with Lee Harvey Oswald. You have a collection of weapons in Miami. You have the phony church thing again in Miami where violence was going to happen for the 72 conventions, and you have him not denying or stating yeah. one way or the other where he was. Therefore, the Miami assassination plan, in lieu of Sturgis being in the media after Kennedy was killed speaking against right. Oswald, he may have been prepared to give the same speech if the assassination had taken place there, right. blaming right. the Cuban. Right. See, right. He, he had his speech, and he just gave the press from Miami... <laughs> See, and right. about Lee Harvey Oswald. So Sturgis, I think that's an important part of your book. I'm glad it's one of your favorites because the yes. Miami killing yes. fits in with, uh, again, from Dallas to Watergate yes. and the, the chain of command, the high-powered scope brought into a building, and the fall guy. It's funny that Watergate made people like ourselves uh, rather respectable, isn't it? Thank you. <laughs> I always thought I was respectable before, Ben. <laughs> I'd hate to think that a crook like Nixon made me respectable. 
But anyway. Well, you know what I mean. We we aren't the kooks that we once were. No, what Watergate did, it didn't change us. It made other people see how silly they right, were. Right. That they right. refused to admit what we were saying all along. What it did was it made other people put their heads between their legs and say, "Where have I been?" But our status, in my terms, or I Schiller think we can all... Schiller and Lewis will no longer be able to get a $90,000 advance to write a book... To put us down. ...about how, yeah, to Oh, I'm sure down. they will. In, <laughs> okay. Incidentally, I don't know if you've been photographed. Did you know Held Boggs' son has a picture of seven researchers or authors on the Kennedy assassination? They got photographed sleeping with women or in compromising positions to put down the researchers. Did you read about that last uh, week? Yes, I read about that. Does he have I, your picture? I, <laughs> I hope so. I don't know. They, they've got me in there. I want to know, Ben. <laughs> if you didn't make the enemy list, I, I, that's what I said last week on the radio. If I didn't make the enemy list, I'm going to make the pornography list. <laughs> One way or another, they got us. You know, it's going to be a little difficult with me. Oh, hell, I'm 60 now. They no, better but you hurry were 10 up. 10 years younger. Oh, well, maybe they have got some old I mean, pictures. Been, these are pictures from 67 or 71. You well, I've given them some chances. Maybe they've uh, got them. Okay. <laughs> Out of volume three, Mr. Pure. <laughs> 1969, you wrote Forgive My Grief. And in these continuous books, let me remind you, um, the actuaries uh, of the Kennedy assassination of people being killed who are witnesses before the Warren Commission, maybe you should repeat those. Uh, because you're the one who's chronicled into the hundreds now, uh, right after the Warren Commission, within three years, how many people were dead? Well, let's see. In this uh, in this volume three, we're up to what number? I see 58. I can't remember myself. 50. Number 68. 68 people. Through the third volume, yes. That uh, were related to the Kennedy assassination. And in, in some one way, way or another met a rather strange death. Like... Uh, the three men that were in Jack Ruby's apartment the night that he shot Lee Harvey Oswald. And Sunday night, after, Sunday yes. Night. They were in Ruby's apartment Sunday night. And, and Oswald's rooming house lady, and the story was that he had left the book depository and taken a bus and a cab, which was yeah. a controversy to Sheriff Craig. Yeah. And the rooming house lady is dead. The bus driver is dead. The cab driver is dead. Yes, yes, yes. And so, the incidentally, to, uh, you were talking about... Uh, Leaving uh, Jack Ruby and the CIA agent that lived down below him that could be bugging the apartment where Jack Ruby lived. But also in one of your books and articles, you mentioned the fact that the man that was in the shoe store that sent the police to the theater where Oswald yes. was moved into Jack Ruby's apartment right, right. when Ruby was in jail and lived right, there, the one right. who set off the chain of command that Oswald would be the patsy. And, you know, across the street from Jack Ruby, at the same apartment manager on both buildings lived um, Bowie. Did you know that uh, George Bowie lived in the same apartment, 2917, yeah. and that he they had the same owner's joint swimming pool, and George Bowie yes, was yes. the uh, uh, CIA cover for the Greek Orthodox Church and was responsible for Marina Oswald and the whole white Russian community, Alan Dulles's agents of the CIA. And he had right directly across the street from uh, Jack Ruby was George Bowie with the same owner of the two safe houses. Yes. Yes. So you had the three men in Ruby's apartment that were murdered right after his apartment with the CIA man underneath the CIA man across the street. And uh, I think we could link three... They had him pretty well covered, didn't they? Pretty well covered. Pretty well covered. And then uh, the Dallas police took over his nightclub when he was dead. How about Volume 3, Forgive My Grief, in 1969? What are your favorite parts of this book? Well, I 
probably, in my opinion, one of the most important things is that this is the first time that the President of the United States has ever been accused of murder in print. And uh, we involved Lyndon Johnson in the, for the first time in Volume 3 did we involve Lyndon Johnson. And uh, I cited the two crimes that he is responsible for. One is the cleaning and pressing of the coat, which is destruction of material evidence. And number two is the destruction of Kennedy's car. That was so gross. Yeah. Well, it is. <laughs> gross. You know, you can still see Bonnie and Clyde's car every summer for a quarter. Can you imagine 48 hours after the President of the United States was killed, the car was airlifted to Michigan and entirely stripped, and there isn't one existing photograph out of this most extensive research in the United States there isn't one existing photograph of um, the interior of that car to tell the direction of the bullets, how many bullets, and how far the gunman would be from the velocity right. into the car. Right. Those things are all removed. I think the clue to it was uh, Mr. Kellerman of the Secret Service who said that there was a flurry of bullets that came, and the Warren Commission kept saying three because they wanted Lee Harvey Oswald to be the lone assassin. And he said, gentlemen, I know a flurry of bullets when I see them. <laughs> well, what happened to the Keller testimony was that, it, as we were saying, um, the lamppost, the street sign, rather, was removed immediately. Yes. It might have shown Nick's in yes. that street sign. The car was removed. The clothing was never uh, uh, seen. It was destroyed by dry cleaning. Kennedy's clothing was locked up. Yes. The FBI autopsy showed an extra bullet. But Kennedy's finger clothes length. were not clean and pressed. It's just Connolly. But has anybody was. been able to examine the fibers of the clothing? Okay. No, not that I know. As a matter of fact, there would be no reason to dry clean Kennedy's clothing, uh, except to see how many holes there are on the back of it, right. because a back shot could go through the back to the throat, and the front shot went through his head and didn't touch the clothing, the fatal right. shot. Right. So it wasn't so important in that incident, see, because he was fatally killed anyway, and you didn't touch his clothing. Right, right. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's an, an, a terrible crime, the, the destruction of that automobile, and it rests at the feet of Lyndon Johnson, and, and in view of everything else, that uh, the great turnaround of, of Lyndon's policy with regard to the military, uh, I think, it certainly well, involves uh, Lyndon very deeply in this thing. Why do you suppose that three months before he died, or was it the reason that he died, that he came out and said that the president was killed by murder incorporated in the Caribbean and not by Lee Harvey Oswald? Do you think that he died or was killed because he said that and wanted to go down in history as <laughs> having told the truth? I, you know, Lennon said twice he didn't think Oswald did it alone. The first time he said it, he went to uh, the Army Hospital in San Antonio for a couple of weeks. And uh, in my opinion, they were, they were uh, debriefing him. Mm -hmm. uh, the second time he said he didn't think uh, Oswald did it alone, he died shortly there. Three months later, he was dead. He died shortly. It was less than that. Yeah. And he... that document that you gave to me, the Torbett document, which I've used many times and I've researched out as much as I could within my investigative powers, mentions that school in Mexico where these assassins were trained, run by Albert Osborne, yeah. alias John Howard Bowen, and I think their connections to the Bahamas, that's why he called it Murder Incorporated in the Caribbean. It was at school in Mexico. Yes. Where yes. Uh, Bowen, uh, alias Osborne, sat with Oswald going down to Mexico. And uh, this is, the again, like Frank Sturgis had this church given to him by the Internal Revenue, 
this was a missionary run by priests who were assassins. They had yes. no, they were never ordained ministers or priests at all, and they had priestly clothing, and yes. they did the political assassinations. Osborne was a preacher, too. He was a... He, he wasn't really ordained, though. No, no. He passed himself <laughs> off. Yeah, well, you know, in the book, The Rich and the Super Rich, there's a discussion of the overthrow of the Shah of Iran, uh, of Mosadal, when the Shah came in, and it tells about Kim Roosevelt, a cousin of Elliot Roosevelt and relative of Franklin Roosevelt, who came in dressed as missionaries in the streets and pulled out machine guns. And there was an article about the King of uh, Jordan, uh, King Hussein in Jordan a couple of years ago, and there was assassinations read, and he was warned to be careful of priestly garbs that they would come dressed as missionaries and churchmen. And I've been saving articles on the relationship of the cover because the church clothing has been used for hiding guns, machine guns, and for assassins to travel. And, and funding the conduit of money comes through the church. As a matter of fact, I did an article, Playgirl uh, uh, put in an article this month, it'll be in the April issue, uh, that comes on the stand in March, and it's called American Hitman. It's just a one-page article. And they want another one the next month. So I wrote one on the priests because the White House question was, uh, how can we hide the money for the Watergate, paying E. Howard Hunt, pay him off? And uh, Dean says, we have the priests. And no newspaper print. And Nixon says, is that a good cover? That's okay. And, and uh, <laughs> uh, this is the March 21st meeting in the White House. And nobody ever asked who the priests. So when I wrote for Playgirl for the next issue on the priests and the use of the priestly garb in the church, to hide political murders, they returned the article to me. They said me, they'd pay me a sum for not publishing it, but they're not publishing it. <laughs> <laughs> so Playgirl backed out, and they turned down the article. They asked for the assignment. They wanted somebody to make the headlines that would be different. I talked about the priests. And, you know, David Ferry was a priest, too. David Ferry. It, and a big buddy of Fiorini's. And Fiorini, Frank Fiorini. Of Watergate fame. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, how about uh, other places in Volume 3 that you have any favorites on that? Any other sections that you like particularly that you'd like to say, um, this is my favorite section? They're you all know, good I, sections. Yeah. It's a good book. There's a lot of material here. You know, I'm getting so old, I, I've got to look at it myself to see what the heck yeah. we put in there. Well, there's a lot of good material on the various murders. Uh, you've got number 60, John Crawford died in a mysterious plane crash in Huntsville, Texas. Um, he was a big buddy of the boy that uh, carried Oswald to work. Yeah, that, he that was time. very closely affil affiliated with uh, Frazier, who took Oswald to the book depository, yeah. Yeah. who was the only link of Oswald to having a weapon, and even he said right. it didn't fit in the paper bag. Right. So the, uh, these connecting links were killed. Well, here's the fourth book that just came out. Uh, how much is this last one again? Oh, it's $6. $6. Coffee, uh, uh, yes. Midlothian, Texas, uh, Penn Jones, Jr., uh, should I give the box number again? You bet, okay. please. What's your box again? Box 1140. 1140. 76065-Texas. Okay, 76065-Texas. You got that? If you forget it or don't have a pencil, <laughs> send a self-addressed envelope to KLRB, and I'll give you the prices and the information on these four books. Forgive My Grief. This is Volume 4 by Penn Jones, Jr. And this just came out recently. This is a new one. Uh, 1974. This is the fourth of your series. I know it's not going to be the last. We're going to keep going <laughs> on this. Uh, what parts of this uh, do you think are uh, it the has most more? This one has more pictures than uh, any of the others. But I, I would like to read uh, 
Just one little paragraph uh, from volume four. Okay. Uh, I'll let you. <laughs> this this uh, chapter is entitled, They Knew, and it has to do with uh, the fact that I think the Warren Commission knew ahead of time that they were going to lie to the American people. Now, uh, the Warren, these are minutes. They used to be secret minutes from a meeting held December 16th, 1963. They're now available from the archives at 10 cents a page if you'd like to order them. And uh, one of them is uh, McCloy is talking to the, all of the other members of the commission. They're talking about the, the site where the killing had taken place, and they had been examining the Zapruder film for a couple of days. They'd been looking at it over and over and over. And finally, Mr. McCloy says to the others, I think we ought to take a look at the grounds, and somebody ought to do it and get the picture of this angle to see if it is humanly possible for him to have been hit in the front from a shot fired from that window. <laughs> Maybe it is, he said. <laughs> well, it is possible if Oswald was capable of banking a rifle shot yeah, and to hit Kennedy in the front. Here yeah. is, he's already turned the corner, and the sixth-floor window is behind him, way behind him, and the car you know, is going on down the street. Yes, put it on the dial of the clock. Oswald is looking out the window at 12 o'clock. Kennedy was driving away from Oswald at 5 o'clock. And there's no way. How could he get him in the front? No way he could hit him in the front. Unless he hit the overpass that ricocheted back. And it back. bounced back. It yes. bounced back. There was no way. But yeah. there's another funny line in this chapter. <laughs> at the meeting. You Alan Dulles of the CIA. Because this is so funny because the, the work that I researched for eight years has Alan Dulles's agents uh, providing all the misinformation that made up the backbone of the Warren Report. He said, I'd like to get the, that material into the hands of the CIA as soon as possible to explain the Russian parts. This is their investigation of Lee Harvey Oswald in Russia. And Senator Russell on the Warren Commission said, I think you've got more faith in them than I have. I think they'll doctor anything they hand to us. <laughs> Here, the Warren Commission destroyed the car, destroyed a street sign, destroyed John Kennedy's clothing turned the Zabruder films backwards so they didn't show the head going backwards that Kennedy was shot from the front. They thermofax Oswald's CIA papers the night of the assassination. I have a list of 37 things that they destroyed. They planted a letter that Lee Harvey Oswald allegedly wrote to his wife the night he was supposed to have shot General Walker. It was unsigned, undated. They forged his signature to ordering a rifle under Heidel. They planted a camera two months later to explain how he took this famous picture of him. They forged his head on a body to say that he owned this rifle. They altered every piece of evidence, planted a phony diary, and no fingerprints on his rifle. And then the, Russell's blaming the Russians and said they'll doctor anything yeah. they hand to us. You see, we're, we're laughing about it because, hell, we can't cry on this program, but, but these are the senior members of both the House and the Senate this, that are doing this. This is the Chief Justice of the United States that's, right. that's doing this. The prestigious commission is going to alter every major piece of evidence. The uh, Life magazine and the Warren Commission admitted they uh, drew a scope on Oswald's rifle, and when they found the rifle came with a scope on it, from Chicago, then they took out what they drew, erased and left the original. Uh, they altered every major piece of evidence and fabricated everything they could, even palm prints and everything of Oswald. 
And then Senator Russell says, you have more faith in the Russians, they'll doctor anything they hand to us. <laughs> the CIA, they'll, the CIA will doctor anything they hand <laughs> They were blaming the Soviet Union for everything that they were doing. <laughs> well, I think uh, we have about two minutes left, and I think that anybody who's interested in studying uh, the Kennedy assassinations can't afford to get these books. I tell people, you know, for the extra cigarettes or luxuries, even the high <laughs> cost of living. If you bought one every two months and set aside, you know, people put aside a, a quarter a week and just developed a library of these very valuable books while they're in print and available and educated themselves or young students each pitched in a dollar each and circulated around, you know, and had a yeah. joint library. People at the colleges that hear this show, there's 44 or 5 people in the house. I've said this at the colleges where I speak and I've crashed at certain places, and, and the kids, you know, will spend money for cigarettes or something at 50 cents a pack or Coke. They all pitch in a dollar each and get these books and sit and read them to understand their history and their times. This is what we're trying to do is get yes. the history straight. Right, right. And they, They're for sale in no bookstore. That's not my fault either. You can I'd ask bookstores, to. local bookstores, to carry them. And, uh, <laughs> well, they might. We may get be able to push this now. As you say, Watergate has brought these things more in the open. Well, I'm awfully glad, Penn, that you came here. Uh, as I said, I visited you in Texas, and now you're in Carmel country. And, this is a beautiful uh, country, May. It, uh, yeah. It's beautiful. I'm. Let me come back. You come back, <laughs> and uh, it's really good to have uh, researchers, particularly Penn, because we've each done our work for 11 years, and we've had a relationship on telephone and correspondence, and I'm glad that we could share it with you on Dialogue Conspiracy. And you take care of yourselves, and we'll see you next week from Carmel, California. This has been Dialogue Conspiracy with political research specialist May Brown.